You're listening to Heart and Soul, a podcast from the Iglesia Cristo Church of Christ. I'm your host, Martin Zeruto, and I'll be interviewing young adults from across the world who are living Christian lives, but are also dealing with real world problems. This is Heart and Soul. Welcome to Heart and Soul. My name is Martin Zeruto. I'm your host, and our guest today is Constance Joy. Constance Joy is 31 years old. She's a registered nurse working in South Atlanta, enjoys writing, talking with family, uh, baby therapy, which I think is hanging out with your niece, Constance Joy, yep. and yes. capoeira, which I believe is a Brazilian form of martial art, right? Yep. There you go. Got it. <laughs> Hi, Constance Joy. How are you today? Hey, what's up? What's up? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Very good. Thank you so much. And we also have joining us today, Minister of the Gospel, Brother Bob. Hi, Brother Bob. Uh, greetings to you both, and welcome <laughs> everyone to this, I believe, is it not uh, there, uh, Martin, the first uh, episode of this season for Heart and Soul? It I'm is. glad to be with you today. Yes, we're happy to have you on our very first season premiere, our episode for, for Heart and Soul after we've come back. Now, for those who have not met uh, the amazing Brother Bob, he's an ordained minister of the gospel, host of That's in the Bible, which can be found on incmedia.org, husband, husband and granddad to five, former Air Force and forever Buffalo Bills fan. Is that true? Forever? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> no matter what. That's right. Now, the, uh, the topic of our episode today is Millennials in Mourning, Why Dealing with Grief Has Gotten Easier and Also Harder. Now, Millennials, as you know, continue to get a lot of flack from other generations. You're too loud, not loud enough, you're entitled, you're not working hard enough, not enough experience, not willing to work for free, you're lazy, on and on and on and on. Now, before we go on, Brother Bob, why do you think as somebody who's not part of the millennial generation, why do you think millennials or young people today get so much flack? Well, I think I cannot uh, disagree with you there, but Martin, that uh, they really do get stereotypical uh, uh, perceptions uh, levied upon them. You know, uh, it, it is, uh, I hear that often from those uh, uh, my age, uh, I'm in my 60s now, that that particular generation of all generations is lazier than any other. I, I cannot deny what you just said there, that they do get that, uh, that stigmatism levied upon them. But I, I'm not so sure that it's always truly uh, warranted. You know, I got five grandchildren, uh, uh, three of them anyway, are, are in that, that age bracket. And, uh, you know, they, they work hard. I see others working hard. But then, you know, as the saying goes, you know, well, I don't know if it's a modern saying, but you know, I'm saying uh, that like one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. That's you know? right. Sometimes uh, people have a tendency to look at just uh, a handful of those they may know and give that uh, stereotypical perception levied upon all millennials. Millennials are of the future. They're, they're going to be running the country and running the world in, in just uh, a, a short lick of time here. So. I, I guess we, uh, we, we we better stop talking about them that way. What do you think? <laughs> Absolutely. Constance Joy, have you ever experienced that, you know, uh, 31 years old, having gone through uh, your teens and your college years? Have you gotten that perception from, from other generations that maybe you guys are, are not doing enough? You're not working hard enough. You're entitled. Totally. Yes, <laughs> totally. Especially um, jumping into the working force. I've experienced those perceptions. And I think it's because 
our generation of millennials are kind of like between worlds or between generations. Like our childhood was carefree, like pre-internet, pre-internet. Exactly. Like we didn't have the influence of social media. And then when it was introduced to us around preteen years or high school years, that's when things were, you know, with social media were brand new. We started connecting with other people through different means and, you know, access to knowledge was at our fingertips. That's right. That's one thing that I would not disagree with, okay, that millennials have a challenge uh, interacting with other people because they spend so much time online and interacting online, not having to deal with uh, uh, face-to-face communication that they are no longer uh, adapted to or they're no longer comfortable in social settings. Th- that, I, that I would agree with. And I think that has to do exactly with what you just said, that the new world is online. Yeah, I agree completely. Like there's a lot of people who have a lot of social anxiety and don't really know how to take on social cues and um, communicate with people face to face or you know, talking over the phone, a lot of it is through text. You know, it's actually interesting. Um, actually, for, for a lot of uh, Ivy League and for those who are in, in very scientific or tech-intensive majors, you know, they have really great grades. They want to continue their career after they've graduated af- out of these really top schools. But they have to take social classes to what you were referring to, Brother Bob, is that, you know, they have all the qualifications to get that interview. They get there, they have to look at a human person and interact, and they have absolutely no idea how to convey their skills or their personality to be hired because their whole life has spent been looking at a screen, not talking to people. Right, right, exactly. Now, yeah. uh, for our listeners, you know, wherever side you may lean on, uh, you know, in terms of the state of our, our, our of the world and, and the generation coming up that's going to be leading it, um, what we have to accept, of course, is that millennials, like all generations, have to deal with grief. And it's a topic that many our age, Constance Joy, both of us being in our early 30s, um, sometimes have a hard time talking about. Constance Joy has come here today to talk about the two kinds of loss that she's gone through and, and the depression and the sadness that, that came after it. Um, how about we start off with your dad, Constance Joy? Tell us a little bit about uh, your relationship with your dad and um, what came about near the end. <sighs> so my life in a nutshell is my family and my faith. Growing up, my family was really tight. We were really close. So I grew up very blessed with my dad, my mom, and my two older brothers. And, you know, growing up, I saw my parents as my superheroes. I still do. So my dad, he was like the life of the party. You know, he told all the corny dad jokes. He was like the king of those cheesy dad jokes. We would um, watch movies all the time. And I remember this one movie we watched uh, was Meet Joe Black. Do you know that movie? Yes, with uh, Brad Pitt. Yeah. So like, I love like those kinds of movies. So like we we got up to the, the box office and my dad's like, Hello there. I'd like to meet Joe Black at seven o'clock. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh my gosh, corny dad joke. But it was like my favorite, you know? And we would sing karaoke together. We would sing like all the duets together, like the Natalie Cole and Nat King Cole songs. Unforgettable. Yeah. And, you know, he taught me how to cha-cha to Stevie Wonder's My Sherry Amore. Wow. And my childhood was filled with moments like that was filled with so much love from my dad. What would you say is the first memory that you have of your father? The first memory that I have of my dad was him sitting my brothers and me down after church and speaking to us about a Bible story. And it was, I think it was about, he he told us a lot of Bible stories. So 
he got us really excited to learn about our faith that way through stories. And he was a great storyteller. And so I just remember him really putting an emphasis on what our faith is and what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a member of the Church of Christ and applying those things in our life. What would he say? Um, He mentioned to us how um, God performs miracles in our lives. Maybe not in the same way that he did in Moses' time, you know, parting of the Red Sea and all that. But if we open our eyes and if we realize, you know, the blessings in our lives, it's, it's God's miracles in our lives. So that was one of the many lessons that he taught me growing up. Um, other memories that I had of him, um, especially, you know, in church or faith related was he was a deacon in our church and he was an overseer. So he would always bring me along with him to visit the brethren. Oh, wow. And I was still in the children's worship service, a little shy little kid. And he would assign me to pray for the first prayer of our meetings. And I would be so scared. How old were you at the time? I was only like maybe six or seven years old. Wow. He would tell me, you know, don't be scared to pray. Don't be scared to talk to God. You know, it's, it's a blessing. It's a, it's a good thing to talk to God. Don't be scared. So it really brought me out of my shell. It helped me with public speaking. It helped me connect with people, being able to pray for them. My dad instilled that in me and he instilled in me the love of the brotherhood because I would see him interacting with the brethren and really asking them, how are you? And really listening and and really caring about what they say. Right, right. What about your first uh, couple of years going into high school, grade nine? It's a lot of pressure. Did it give you any kind of dad talks before you entered into that new stage in your life? So going into high school, I remember him giving me that, you know, boy talk. (laughs) What did he say? He asked me, he said, what do you think is the greatest test of love? And I said, I don't know, distance, you know, like distance makes the heart grow fonder. That's what you told him at 14? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then my dad said, nope. And I was like, I don't know, like fighting, like, you know, (laughs) You know, going through arguments and and like getting through those fights together. But he was like, nope. Um, and I was like, I don't know, daddy. I don't know what. And then he said, time. Time is the greatest test for love. Because if you start out really falling for someone, having those feelings for them, and then as time passes, you know, things will happen. Only time will tell. And how did you take that advice at 14? Well, I didn't I didn't realize what he was saying until I actually experienced it. So he yeah. told me that time will tell. And then if it doesn't work out in the end, then, you know, at least it, it wasn't a waste of time because you, you learn what you don't want in a relationship or you learn from that experience. Mm-hmm. And then if it does, you know, work out in the end, then it was all worth the wait. And, you know, to, not only like our time, you know, but in God's time. Right. So, yeah. So that was one of the, again, one of the many things that I've (laughs) taken from my advice from my dad. So time and being, you know, patiently enduring, especially God's time will test our love. When did you guys find out? So when I was 15 years old, my dad um, was rushed to the emergency room. He was having symptoms and, you know, he was really young. He was 39 years old at the time. So the symptoms that he was experiencing, the doctors didn't think that it was, you know, cancer related or we didn't have to worry about cancer at all because he was young. What were the symptoms? Um, He was bleeding and uh, abdominal pain and everything. So they ran some tests and 
and then they found a huge mass in his colon. I remember when my mom and dad found out and they brought me and my brothers inside his hospital room. They were very lighthearted about it. And, you know, they just, they wanted to show to us that we had nothing to worry about. You know, they didn't want us to be scared. They, especially my mom, she just thought it would just be, you know, another bump in the road that our family would have to go through. What was that conversation like? What did they say? Well, my dad, you know, being the joker that he is, he showed us a picture of that mass and he was like, look at this. I have an alien in my body. Ha ha And so it was like, you know, like awkward laugh, like ha ha ha, but that's really scary. But, you know, like I, I understand, you know, like they, they just wanted us to not worry. They didn't want us to be scared. So we followed their lead. We didn't worry because we knew that God was on our side. We knew that we had our family prayers. We had our support system with our extended family. And, you know, in the Church of Christ, we ask for anointing of oil from the elders and right. they they pray for us. So we we did all of that throughout his his treatment. So after that diagnosis, they planned for surgery. Right. After that surgery, um, was the treatment, the radiation, the chemotherapy. What was the, uh, what was the prayer like that day after you found out about the mass in his stomach? The prayer was just so full of faith that we were just, we did not doubt at all that God would heal him, Right. that we would survive this and we would just keep on keeping on, you know, after the surgery, after, you know, throughout the treatment. So we moved back to California to be with our extended family and our extended family there in San Pablo. And we would have family devotional prayers, family anointing of oils at the chapel. How often? Um, we would do it like once a week. And then especially if my dad had some sort of test or procedure, we would do it through like every day throughout the week. How was that for you as a high school student, you know, moving to a new school, knowing your dad was undergoing the treatment? What was going to school like? What were the thoughts in your mind while all of this was happening? So going to school, it wasn't really a new school because I lived in California before right. we had moved to Las Vegas and then back to California. So I still had my friends that I had in middle school and I didn't really talk to them about what my dad was experiencing. I, I spoke with my cousins about it because they were like my brothers and sisters right. and they saw my dad as like a second parent. So we were experiencing this all together as a family. But in regards to school, I didn't really focus on school at the time. It wasn't really a priority in my life. And I just cared about my family. You know, I was just going through the motions because that was, you know, I had to go to school. That was like my job as a kid. But I wasn't really into academics until college. Right. So the treatments were happening. Were there signs that he was getting better or were there signs that he wasn't getting better? So after a year, it seemed like he was gaining more weight. He was looking very healthy and looking like he was healthy and happy and back to normal. Was he bedridden? He was able to move around? or He was able to move around and he... He looked great. He looked like he was healing. He felt like he was healing. And then maybe like a year after his first surgery, they did another imaging test and they saw that the cancer had spread to other organs. 
and then at that time, I think it, it wasn't so lighthearted anymore. It was more serious. You know, we didn't expect for this news, we expected for him, for those results to show that he was completely healed and in remission. And we just had to, you know, keep up with treatments. And Can you walk us through that day? How you guys found out? Where were you and, and what did they say? So after um, that time, when my parents told us that the cancer had spread, we continued our devotional prayers and we continued to have this faith, like, you know, God will show miracles in our lives, just like what my dad taught me when I was younger. And from then, my dad had another surgery because his his condition was getting worse. It wasn't getting better from there. So he had another surgery and um, then he wasn't responding to the regular regimens of treatment. So he signed up for clinical trials and then he, he continued to get worse from there. So I would go with my mom and dad to his appointments. And then this one day I was with them. We met with his oncologist. So one day... It's okay. So one day my mom and I went with my dad to his appointment to meet with his oncologist again. And in that appointment, the doctor just broke the news and told my dad he only had a few months to live. That must have been quite hard, I suppose. Huh? It was, it was something I've never experienced or never seen my parents go through because like I said earlier, my parents are my superheroes. You know, you, when you're young, you, you see your parents as these, these powerful like, superhuman people, nothing can touch them. And then that day I saw my dad cry for the first time and I saw him for being human. And I, I realized this was, this was something like really serious. And my mom, like strong as she is, she's a rock and she was still, you know, by my dad's side, still comforting him saying that it'll be okay. And so I still, in my heart, I still hoped against all hope, and I still prayed to God that he'll perform a miracle. That's what we continued to do. And when we got home that day, my dad called his mom, his brothers and sisters, all my cousins. And so all my family was gathered in my house, and my dad shared the news with them that the doctor told him he only was given a limited amount of time and the whole room just was just so full of sadness and tears and i remember everybody was in our family room and i was just sitting on our stairs just watching everyone break down and cry and i was crying too but i still in my heart i was like no no He's not, he's not going to die. And, and then my dad said to all of us, he said, today we cry, but tomorrow is a new day. And I want all of you to smile and be happy because we still have this time together. And he said, I don't want you to remember me in this sickly state. I don't want you to remember me this way. I want you to remember me as the man who 
loves all of you. Right. And so we listened to my dad and in the darkest, saddest times, like for some reason, some way, somehow my family is able to turn things around and, and, you know, find a way to still laugh about things and enjoy life. So, you know, we had our, you know, family get togethers, our family parties with our soul food. And again, we continued to pray as a family during that time. Um, you know, the doctor told us he had maybe six months to live when in reality, he only had like two months. Oh man! And then as his condition continued to get worse, I just remember sitting in the choir loft and seeing my dad in the back row with his oxygen. You know, he still continued to attend worship service. And I know like before then, like he was, he was still performing as a deacon as much as he could still performing his duties until he, he just physically couldn't anymore. That's what I remember the most is even though he was physically dwindling and becoming more weak, his spirit was the strongest ever. So that's what I remembered in those moments when he um, was about to pass away, he was placed on home hospice. So he was able to be with us at home. My family and I were all together. We were able to speak with him and tell, tell him how much we loved him. And even then, even then I was still hopeful. I was still hopeful. I was still praying to God. Like, I know, I know this is just a test of our faith. I know we just need to trust in you. I know we just we just need to keep praying and then you'll, you'll come through for us. You'll, you'll heal him. You'll perform a miracle. And then I remember before my dad passed away, when he was very, very sick, he said, don't ever blame God for the things that we go through in this life, because this life isn't ours. It belongs to God. You know, if God wants to take it back, then so be it. And then he he told us, this life isn't all that we have. Our true home is in the holy city. It's in heaven. So we just need to hold on to our faith so we can see each other again. He also taught me about prayer. You know, ever since I was young, he was always teaching me about prayer. Even in his last days, he said, even if God doesn't answer our prayers right away or he, he doesn't respond with an answer that we want, does that mean we're going to stop praying to him? Does that mean we're going to stop loving him? And of course, no. You know, All the more we need to trust God right. and show God that we love him by always praying to him and worshiping him no matter what. He taught me that. He said, love God no matter what. It was one of the last things that he said to you. Yes, it was. It was July 13, 2004. I woke up instantly to crying, wailing, just loud, mournful tears falling from everybody's eyes. I ran downstairs and saw just everyone crying because my dad had passed away in his sleep. 
I said to myself, I said, this is it. This is what my dad was talking about. I didn't understand. I didn't understand why God would take a life that was so faithful, so good. Only God knows. And, you know, I had to listen to my dad. I can't be angry at God for taking his life. I can't stop loving God just because God didn't answer my prayer that was in my heart this whole time. So I said, you know, this is what my dad was talking about. Your dad, your dad was uh, really uh, correct, uh, Constance Joy. It was his, uh, when he told you that we have to accept God's answer. It's not that he did not answer. It's just that he did not give the answer that you were hoping for. When that, that particular request that you and your family had, God's answer was, no, not, that's, not, that's not the plan. That's not my will. You know, obviously, it, God had a different plan. And uh, as hard as that, as that was for you, it fulfilled the plan and will of God for all of you in uh, whatever way God in, intended. By the way, uh, Sister Constance, um, thank you so much for sharing that story because uh, it's not only you that experienced such, such kind of grief. There are many who may be uh, joining us in this podcast that have experienced a uh, similar kind of uh, sadness. Definitely. And you sharing your story so openly and uh, with that raw uh, essence of emotion that you included is helpful to, to them. You know that they're not alone in sharing the kind of grief that they experience. I want to share a story with um, Constance Joy and others who may have experienced that. There was a time before I was an ordained minister, which is obviously decades ago, so if you can imagine how many years ago it was. But nevertheless, it's a moment that remains fresh in my mind like it was yesterday. There was, uh, there was a couple close to us, and the, they had been uh, so many years trying to have children, and they were not able. And then finally, uh, God gave them uh, a child. But the child was born with a heart defect. Wow. And... Uh, I was born and needed surgery right away, and then needed surgery again when the child was two years old. So they had two years of uh, various uh, medical appointments and all of that, and uh, they were going through all of that, but they were just so happy to have their, their brand-new baby boy in their life. And they would uh, wish to have a third uh, surgery. This was all predicted uh, right at the beginning. It would be a three-surgery uh, process. The first two surgeries went very well. The third did not. The, the little boy was uh, very sick in the uh, intensive care, and uh, the uh, medical personnel all told the parents that, I'm sorry, uh, there's nothing more we can do. Your little, your little boy's got only uh, such a very short moments even uh, to, to live. Oh, you can imagine how traumatic that, that was. Uh, I was there with them in the uh, ICU. You know, the, the hospital was so nice. They brought in this little rocking chair. And the family had no choice, but they, uh, they disconnected all of the various life support connections and this and that. And they told the couple, oh, your baby boy will live for uh, maybe two at the most three minutes. He will just gradually just go to sleep and pass away. So they unhooked the baby boy, gave the uh, boy to, in the arms of the mother. And she sat in that rocking chair and she rocked that little baby. And uh, the two minutes passed by, and it was approaching the third minute, and everybody was expecting the little boy would stop breathing. And then three minutes passed, and uh, everybody, you know, starts looking at each other a little bit, and, uh, you know, you could see in the eyes of the parents, oh, boy, maybe God is answering a miraculous uh, request or a request for a miracle here. Four minutes came. Five minutes passed. That little boy is still breathing. 
six minutes, seven minutes pass, eight minutes. Well, by eight minutes, you can just imagine the excitement. This boy is totally disconnected from all the life support, no breathing tubes, no whatever else they do when they connect all those things, you know? And eight minutes pass, that boy is breathing. Nine minutes pass. The excitement of those parents was just filling the air. Oh, my goodness. Ten minutes pass. That boy is still breathing on his own. Eleven minutes. Twelve minutes pass, and the boy stops breathing and passes away. Well, the parents, the mother specifically, you know, there's several moments of, the, uh, of grief and, and, and tears, and, and they're turning to me. They want me to have every possible answer to every imaginable question uh, relative to the emotions that they're feeling, and they're asking me questions like, you know, why? What, was, was, was God joking? Was, was, was God just harassing us? Was, was he, why did he put us through this? You know, the family remained very uh, loyal and, and faithful to God. Just the way Constance Joy, you, said, you, you were saying that in spite of God saying no to their request, they too remained faithful to God, believing and trusting that what God was uh, doing in their life was in accordance with his will. What I witnessed in uh, the experience of the passing of that uh, little baby boy, everybody was changed. Sometimes people ask, why would a child die so early in life? The child didn't do anything wrong. What's the purpose then of that baby's life? That baby's life and that baby's death changed every single one of us that were involved in that moment. It changed the mother. It changed the father. It changed me. The experience enhanced us in so, in so many different ways and gave us capacities to have empathy in ways that we never even could have imagined prior to that. The baby's purpose and intent for living was fulfilled. It accomplished its intended purpose in the overall picture of God. You, Constance Joy, and others joining the program have uh, been changed, molded in accordance to the will of God in ways that you even may not see. And that couple that experienced that as I witnessed so many decades ago, was also changed and in many good ways. By the way, even though they were not able to have children for such a long time in their life, God did give them another child soon thereafter who was healthy and strong and they continues to grow faithfully up until now. Allow me to read this, Brother Martin, from the, from the Holy Scriptures. John 16, 20 and 22 reads this way. I can guarantee this truth. You will cry because you are sad. The world will be happy. You will feel pain, but your pain will turn to happiness. Now you're in a painful situation, but I will see you again. Then you will be happy, and no one will take that happiness away from you. That's the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. He knows we're going to experience these things in this life, but he promises also to you, Constance Joy, and to everyone experiencing great and deep sadness, to that couple I just mentioned about, happiness is promised by the one who can truly give it in the time and in accordance to his will. We, we should never lose sight of that. And hearing those words, thank you so much, Brother Bob, and, and for sharing that story. Thank you so much. I guess in a way, they did get a miracle in that they got an extra 10 minutes that the doctors didn't expect to happen just a little bit more time with the little boy than they thought they were going to have. Absolutely. And so knowing that, Constance, Joy, what was it like? Your, your father had passed away. How were you able to persevere? What were those, those nights like 
knowing that your 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 dad had passed away? So I was blessed with, you know, 17 years of receiving that love from my dad and having those special memories. You know, not a lot of people get to have that much time with their parents. So I understood that with, with that limited amount of time that I had, you know, I had that infinite amount of love and memories that I can cherish from my dad. Grieving is definitely not linear and it's not that step-by-step process. You know, have you heard of like the stages of grief, like denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance? So losing my dad, it was very, very difficult because, you know, that one person that you want to go to for advice, that one person that you want to go to for comfort is not there anymore. Absolutely. My family and I had to navigate through those feelings of grief together and also individually. According to studies, San Diego State University, they show that having limited family proximity that are close to you can actually lead to anxiety and depression. They point the study more towards millennials because whether losing a, a parent, you know, non-traditional households where you only have one parent or you don't have any parents at all, or high divorce rates, which are impacting millennials more so than other generations. The lack of having somebody there to go to has actually led to a lot of millennials or young people to anxiety and depression. Would that relate more to your situation? Absolutely, yes. Because, you know, one of the last life advice that my dad gave, I remember that day when my dad found out that he didn't have much time to live and he told um, our entire family, you know, today we cry, but tomorrow we're going to smile. We're going to keep on living. Remember me, not in this way, but in my strong, healthy presence and know that I love you all. I, you know, I wanted to listen to my dad so much. I wanted to just remember him in that way. I didn't allow myself to remember him going through that process of, you know, being physically weak. Right. I didn't allow myself to remember him that way because I I didn't want to let my dad down. I wanted to, you know, I I said I cried. I'm going to (laughs) smile. I'm just going to push through it just like what my dad taught me. But that really caught up to me because there were years before I would even have the capability to talk about my dad without crying. Like whenever I would talk about my dad, I would just start bawling. I I didn't allow myself the time to process, you know, everything that happened, what it all meant to me. What would you say was your lowest of lows where you're like, this is it, I'm I'm depressed, I can't, I, I can't even process, I can't handle this? Honestly, after my dad passed away, I went through waves of depression every year. And I just thought that that was my new normal. There would be months at a time when I would be depressed and I wouldn't realize it. And I didn't have that insight into what I was experiencing. I just thought, I'm just going through it again. It will pass. So I think once the feelings of depression infiltrated like other aspects of my life, I was in college and my schoolwork was messed up. I was feeling really anxious every time I performed my duties at church, my relationships, I was being more withdrawn. It just really affected everything that I did. Did somebody ever come up to you and like, hey, are you okay? Or like, do you need somebody to talk to you? Or was this all internal reflection? Like, hey, something's wrong with me. It was all an internal reflection. And actually, my mom, my mom knows my heart and she knows what's up. You know, my lowest of lows, my highest of highs, my mom was there. And what did she say to you? She understood because she was going through the same exact things so or probably like a million trillion times more. Mm-hmm. So she took me by the hand. Yeah. She drove me to the beach and she's like, yell, yell at the water. We did that together. She taught me about not being stuck. She helped me really drag myself out of this hole. 
Right, right. I mean, it did help for sure, but there were even times when I would be in it even deeper because grieving, like, it just was like an emotional roller coaster. I went to the doctor and I'm like, I think I'm going crazy. Because of your grief. Yeah, I spoke with a mental health professional and I was able to put a face, you know, a name to what I was going through. What was the face? What was the name? It was recurrent major depressive disorder. I was able to say, okay, because I was like diagnosing myself with like all this other stuff. WebMD, dangerous. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and so I I was able to just say, okay, yeah, that's it. The more you know about it, the more you're not scared of it. And the more you could just face it full on and not run from it. Like, okay, yes, I am depressed. For our listeners who may be able to relate to Constant Joy's situation, you know, how can we help them out? Well, you, you and I, Brother Martin, cannot uh, help them out because uh, it's really only God who can do that. And he tells us uh, when he will do that. I mean, for Constance Joy and for anyone who's going through such kind of things that uh, she has, which are so deeply uh, penetrating in the uh, realm of grief, we we can we could say to them, you and I, uh, Brother Martin, just press on, just uh, right. go, go, go on. You know, the only one who can really give the strength and the guidance is, of course, is the Lord. So I'll read a couple of verses from the Lord's uh, words, which uh, say, for, for example, Proverbs 14, verse 13, the expanded rendition of the scriptures reads this way. Someone who is laughing may be sad inside. Even in laughter, the heart may feel pain and joy may end in sadness. Sister Constance Joy, maybe you have uh, yourself, uh, along with other listeners, may have experienced, and this may even be describing some of your nights. Psalms chapter 6, verse 6 reads this way. I'm worn out with grief every night. My bed is damp from my weeping. My pillow is soaked with tears. I think probably everyone who has experienced such deep grieving that you have may uh, be easily uh, able to identify with uh, Psalms chapter 6, verse 6, where it describes the deep weeping and tears. But here's the thing. Uh, Yes, Martin and I, we have no solution for you. However, consider this uh, prophecy of Isaiah or the words of God recorded in Isaiah 65, 17 through 19, which says this. Pay close attention now. I'm creating new heavens and a new earth. All the earlier troubles, chaos, and pain are things of the past to be forgotten. Look ahead with joy. Anticipate what I'm creating. I'll create Jerusalem a sheer joy. Create my people a pure delight. I'll take joy in Jerusalem. Take delight in my people. No more sounds of weeping in the city. No cries of anguish. Constant joy, that's a description of what we will feel in the holy city. It will be sheer joy. But the Lord acknowledges in this life there will be moments of deep pain and uh, sorrow. But those things will be forgotten. And that's what everyone should realize. The solution is making it safe to the holy city where those things don't exist anymore. And they are replaced with the sheer joy of the Lord's promises. So don't let anything derail your continued journey to the kingdom of God as loyal, faithful members of the Church of Christ, serving the Lord, and we welcome all our guests, maybe that are joining the podcast, to continue to uh, listen, continue to join in, and join other programs here inside the Church of Christ, where we feel the embrace and comfort 
of God who continues to watch over all of us inside the church. God bless you, Sister Constant, for your perseverance and for that of your family and all that you've been through. Thank you, Paul Kabab. Thank you so much, Brother Bob, for those really applicable, spiritual, and also practical words from God and, and teachings from our Lord Jesus Christ. And so now we turn to a study here from UC Davis saying that young adults from 17 to 24, when someone turns 18, they don't magically become an adult. The brain is still developing and a lot of irrational things happen. Add grief to that and things kind of blow up. And they say the challenges on social media with that constant digital connection. One minute, they're getting a text saying, I'm so sorry for your loss. And the next, it's, hey, want to go for a movie? It's bad enough that we think grief should end in three to four days. But with social media, it's reduced to 15 minutes. So Constance Joy, you know, of this generation who pre-internet now with the abundance of social media, has it made dealing with grief easier or dealing with grief a little bit harder? Through my experience, um, I did share memories of my dad on my social media, and it gave me a way to connect with people who also shared memories with my dad. So there was definitely that benefit of connection with people who also share the same grief and the same love right, right. for those who are lost. I definitely see the benefits of social media, even more so the way that I was able to really connect with people outside of social media. I was able to really talk with my close friends and my family. So it helped a little bit. It did help a little bit, but even more so it was like the, the connections in person and most importantly, the spiritual connections with God. I was able to pray. Right pray harder, pray more. Did you feel like there was a pressure alluding to the verse that Brother Bob said that on social media, you have to be bubbly. You have to show that you're okay. And that if, if you had lingered too long or perceived lingering through your posts that people would think you're not getting over, that you're not moving forward. Definitely. I feel that there is that pressure. But again, I was able to grow up in a time when there wasn't social media. So I'm able to detach from social media whenever I want to. So right, right. I'm able to just deactivate for a few months and have a social media detox. You know, we exude this energy of being bubbly or being happy all the time. And especially like as a nurse, I give a lot of energy to my work. I also give a lot of energy towards my duties. The types of things that I do in my life and like the relationships that I have with my family and my friends, they also reciprocate rejuvenating energy. Energy back. Right. Yeah, yeah. There are times when I give and give and give all my energy away and I fail to acknowledge, I fail to remember that I need to re-energize myself and I need to gain it back through self-care. Real quickly, what would be three things self-care that you use? Exercise. Got it. I'm failing on that one. Okay, number two. <laughs> I'm, um, <laughs> dude, me too. I got I to gotta get back into my capoeira. Okay. Okay, number two, relationships. Mm. Make time for the ones that you love. Cherish that time. Love one another. And number three? Prayer. Connection with God. Mm. That has been my saving grace because no matter what happened in my life, God has always came through for me and really did show his miracles in my life. And there you have it, you know. If you feel like as a young adult, you're listening to this thinking that, you know, the deck's been stacked against you. You may be living in a, a home where you don't have somebody immediately to turn to. You grew up in a, in a household or in an environment where you felt isolated going on social media. You felt, felt pressured to be a certain way. Self-care, taking the time to really take care of yourself, reflect on where you want to go in your spiritual journey in life. 
life and, and the huge role that prayer and God's words can really help. Brother Bob, any, any other closing words? Well, I'm really glad Constance Joy did uh, mention prayer because uh, there was a statement that I had in my mind when you were asking that question. It's And, and it's uh, from the book of Psalms, uh, 18 verse 6. It says, I called on the Lord in my distress. I cried to my God for help. He heard my voice from his temple and my cry for help reached his ears. I think there, uh, Brother Martin, that prayer is uh, the, the valuable asset that we have. And uh, one thing that was mentioned in this verse was prayer from the temple. And we know we go to the temple, the house of worship, at times of our worship services. So go there. Bring to God our distress, our, our sorrows, our Group. It's there where he's promising uh, to help. You know, with regard to the social media element you guys were discussing, I think, uh, uh, Martin, people go to social media because they think it opens up doors to other elements of life in the world that may not be around them in their neighborhood, in their home. Yeah, vicariously. It, yes, the doors to the world are opened on the Internet. Yeah. It may not really be so because, as we all know, I don't think anybody would deny the reality that not everything on the Internet is is real <laughs> fake <you> news <laughs> yes it's uh the, the whole fake news and it's not only news that's not real people are not always real it's a pretty uh slippery slope to put your uh your trust on opening the doors to the world by means of the internet however to all uh social media enthusiasts who may attempt to open the doors of their world by means of the internet Consider instead Psalms 34.9, the message rendition of the scriptures is worded this way, I quote, Worship God if you want the best. Worship opens doors to all his goodness. Well, how about that? Worshiping God is what will truly open the doors to healing, comfort, companionship, to strength, hope, courage for whatever tomorrow may bring. And we all know tomorrow may bring new hurdles or obstacles or even sorrows. But worshiping the one true God will open the doors to all of his goodness. And I think nobody will deny that we all need that. Life is challenging. For example, consider Psalms 42.3, before we finish up there, Brother Martin, uh, verses uh, 5, 4, even verse 8 as well. It reads together this way. Day and night, my tears are my only food, as everyone keeps asking, where is your God? Why am I discouraged? Why am I restless? I trust you, and I will praise you again, because you help me. Sorrow floods my heart. When I remember leading the worshipers to your house, I can still hear them shout their joyful praises every day. You are kind, and at night you give me a song as my prayer to you the living Lord God. Point being there, God is our strength and hope. Everyone who's experiencing, it, it seems, uh, uh, forgive me if I'm putting additional words in your mouth, Constance Joy, but it seems to me that you yourself have acquired much strength and courage by means of your faith and trust in God in spite of the deep sorrows that have happened in your life. And uh, all others who may be joining the podcast or experience similar things or other kinds of sorrows can also follow the footsteps of uh, constant joy and trusting God, praying always, being with us in the church, worshiping God in the temple or the house of worship, and receiving the spiritual hugs of grace that he provides to his loyal and uh, faithful people 
do that and you won't be disappointed. That would be the advice I would give to, to uh, everyone, uh, Brother Martin. And definitely a kind of advice, no matter how old you are or where you are in life or what may, you may be going through, definitely applicable in your time of need. We want to thank you so much, Constance Joy, for coming on our show, having the courage to share with us your experiences. Constance, thank you so much. If I could just reach one person who can also benefit from my story, then I would love to have that opportunity. So thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you. We really appreciate it so much. <laughs> a big thank you to Brother Bob as well. He's really the one who's championing the show for coming back. So thank you so much, Brother Bob, for sharing spiritual guidance. Sure, Brother Martin. And for all of you, our listeners, if you're going through some lows, you know, some, some really hard times, know that it's okay and that you deserve to be better. If right now you need immediate help, immediate attention to, to somebody to listen to what you're going through, and you're living in the United States, the National Suicide Prevention Line, 1-800-273-8255. It's open 24-7. Please give them a call. Any kind of emotional crisis, please give them a call. They're there to help. And if you're listening from Canada, Crisis Services Canada, 1-833-456-4566. Now, above all, if you're looking to continue your spiritual journey and you're listening to us for the first time and you have questions about how true faith can help you in your day-to-day -day life, please email us at info at incmedia.org. Day or night, we'll be there for you and your questions. Please follow our hashtag on Instagram, hashtag heart and soul conversations. And that's it from us today. Hope you'll join us next time. Ready to listen with all your heart and soul. Take care. <laughs>